Do you know what nemesis means? Welcome to Direct, the podcast that takes a direct trajectory through a director's filmography. I'm Eric. I'm Levi. Jackie Brown. Jackie Brown is the f- next movie that we're covering in our Tarantino series. Uh, Levi, in 30 seconds, tell me what you thought of Jackie Brown. Uh, I think it proves that Quentin Tarantino is number one a director before a writer and before definitely before an actor. Huh. What, what makes you say that? I was I was watching some interviews with Quentin Tarantino talking about the actors and listening like especially to Robert De Niro who I think as Lewis plays a really interesting role for somebody so famous for their acting. Yeah. He's generally pretty lethargic, but it's a fantastic uh acting job that he does with all of his body language mm-hmm. and I think that given you know this is Pam Greer, this is an opportunity for him to take another actor, similar to like John Travolta, who it's not that they were not acting, it's just it has been so long since they had such a large role, and he is able to get performances out of them. I don't think it's just material, because I think these actors are intelligent. I think they really try to smartly find good roles, Mm -hmm. but I think Quentin Tarantino is able to bring something out of them that... You know, they just haven't had in a long time. I think he's a, I think it shows he's a, this, a very, very strong director. That is his best gift. Absolutely. I, I, I completely agree with you. I think that there were some unique challenges that, um, that Quentin Tarantino was taking on with this movie. And one, he's paying homage to a, a series of films that he, holds dear to his heart and that influenced him strongly as a director and he does that a lot in pulp fiction and in uh, reservoir dogs obviously but this one is really a direct reference to foxy brown for instance uh in fact it uses the same font as foxy brown used um for the uh, for the title sequence uh so there's something there but then this is also you know a fairly straightforward story and reservoir dogs was similarly a straightforward story story but Reservoir Dogs much of a shorter film this this movie is as long as Pulp Fiction but it only tells one tale so you know I feel like he's kind of diving in with both feet and uh, and challenging himself on his third film and you know I'd be remiss to say if I didn't if I didn't think that uh or that I did think that this movie did kind of drag a little bit did I you th- get that at all you know I I hear I understand what you're you're saying mm-hmm. i don't know that that's the word i would use because one thing i noticed uh, out of all of his films is this one jumps kind of from with the exception i think of kind of the opening credits with jackie on the on the people mover it yeah. generally jumps from action to action there is very little in between movement mm-hmm. it it's kind of lacking what Tarantino became really popular for in Pulp Fiction. You know, the the long dialogues between scenes, Reservoir Dogs right. sitting in the car waiting and just talking. This doesn't have – it jumps from uh, Ordell getting the call that Beaumont <laughs> is in jail yep. straight to him walking into Max Cherry's bail bonds. Right. And I mean, there's I mean, really – that's what just, you do. But that seems like something – Tarantino's not known for. <laughs> yeah, I, but I feel like there were, uh, you know, I feel like there were, I feel like this movie easily could have been 30 minutes shorter. Uh, 
and you know, I, this is just my opinion, and 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 like I read, uh, I read Ebert's uh, review of the film, and he said that the people who think this movie's too long have movie attention deficit disorder, which I might have. I don't know, <laughs> but uh, um, you know, I, I just felt like there were a few scenes that were a little frivolous. There were some takes that probably could have been shorter. Um. Like the one that comes to mind is when Ordell is at Jackie's uh, house, uh, and she basically turns the tables on him and doesn't let her kill, doesn't let him kill her uh, right there in her house. Um, then they kind of come to an understanding and come to a deal to get the money. And then there's like this scene about her like walking into the door, just closing the door. It's like a two. It's like a I don't know thirty to forty five second scene. Uh. It didn't really need to be there, but it does cut into the next scene, which is her in the morning opening the door and having Max come in. So, you know, I understand why it's all there. I just feel like maybe a little bit more judicious editing and a little bit more judicious cutting could have made the film a little bit snappier. Because I I still enjoyed the film and I was enthralled by it. In fact, I kind of viewed it as like a three-part miniseries (laughs) is really the way that I saw it. Because it kind of is like three 45-minute films. Um, and you know, I was, I was thinking to myself, if this was, you know, if this was broken into three episodes, it would be, you know, must watch TV. I'd be hitting, you know, play next on Netflix instantly. So it's not that I, not that I dislike the film by any means. I just feel like maybe some judicious cutting could have been appropriate. Yeah. I think I agree with that assessment that there were moments that could be shortened or shot a little different. Mm -hmm. I the fact that it you're like hit the next my notes drop off at the end of the movie because i just <laughs> at that point it wasn't you know with especially with pulp fiction having seen it so many times you yeah. know you can take the time to really like listen to the jack rabbit slims music mm-hmm. i know that there the music was at the end of the film but i honestly just had I was not rewinding to really like try and figure <laughs> out. I just wanted to, cause I had forgotten exactly how it ended. Yeah. I remember very vaguely um, what had happened, but I was just, Oh, I had to know how it went down. <laughs> yeah. It's a, uh, they do a great job. I mean, that's the thing with this film is that the characters are really strong. Like every character top to bottom is a strong character. Uh, and that's what makes it interesting, and that's what makes it, even if it may feel like it's moving a little too slowly, you still want to see what happens to all these people. Like, even, uh, like, Sharonda, or, no, not Sharonda, Simone, the, uh, <laughs> like, she's revealed, like, she only has, like, two scenes in the movie. <laughs> she basically has the scene where she's dancing for Robert De Niro at the beginning in her Supremes costume, and then there's a scene in the mall, and that's it. But, like, you know that she has, like, this thing where she likes to dance for people, <laughs> I definitely. It's like, I wrote yeah, down it, check off Simone because I could not figure out what that scene was about with Robert De Niro mm-hmm. at the start. I had I was writing down. I was like, "What the hell is this serve? Yeah. What purpose?" And then when she shows up at the end, I went, "Oh, that's right. That's good. Yeah, that's solid. well." She shows up like an hour before the end of the movie to grab the money. Yeah, but that's basically it. Yeah, it's it's uh that and that's the thing about the film as well is that the last hour of this movie are pretty is pretty damn enthralling and i think uh it takes a little bit of a little bit of while to to wind itself up and i think this is a good uh, opportunity to just go to the beginning of the movie uh it does start off differently than you know tarantino's first two films in that it's a just goes right into an opening 
title sequence with Pam Greer on the people mover at the airport. No dialogue, whereas the first two movies basically opened up on dialogue. Um, no dialogue to begin the movie. We're just going straight into the title sequence. And one of the things that I really like about Tarantino in this title sequence is that he uses the opportunity to highlight the actors. Like he, he you know, he always talks. He's this encyc- encyclopedic knowledge of uh, of films, and he always likes to highlight the actors that are in the film. And he does that right off the bat. He's like, "These are the actors in my movie. Pay attention to them because there's nothing else going on except for this lady on a people mover." So I thought that was interesting because it, it is a departure from uh, from his first two films. There's definitely this shot, and I noticed it kind of throughout the film. There are a lot of like one point perspective shots throughout the film, yeah. and they serve mm-hmm. really well as that motion through scenes. I I was kind of it's like Aaron Sorkin without talking, mm-hmm. but there's a lot of walking. <laughs> yeah, there is. I, you know that was, and I think that's one of the things that I was like, you know, these scenes. Whereas in in prior movies, he does long take scenes where people are talking and he's leaning on the dialogue. There were scenes, you know, the one that comes to mind is when Pam Greer uh, is rushing out of the the dressing room in the mall. I think it's the longest shot in the movie where it follows her down the escalator, walking through the department store out to the mall. And then it's, like you said, Aaron Sorkin-esque spins around her like three times. And then she calls out for Ray. And I think it's probably a two-minute shot. And I was just kind of like, well, nothing's really happening here. She is acting frantically, but there's no dialogue. And I was just like, maybe I would have liked to see a longer shot with more interaction, more people, more dialogue, which is where I think Tarantino shines. But, um, yeah. So, but it does go right into... uh, it once once we meet Pam Greer, then we do go into Samuel L. Jackson watching the gun guns and chicks. Was that what it's called? Uh, <laughs> chicks with guns. Chicks Chick, with guns. No, chicks who love guns. There's... Chicks who love guns. Talk uh, about the tech and nine. then and then the story gets going, and then we don't see Pam Greer again for twenty five minutes. So there's a twenty five minute setup of Odell uh, of uh, Ordell killing Beaumont. It's basically this 25-minute scene, and then we get come back to Pam Greer. It was a 25-minute setup so that Quentin Carantino could do a uh, shot from a trunk of a car. <laughs> I did love the reference there because, you know, obviously he's known for this trunk shot, right? But in Reservoir Dogs, a trunk shot, they open up the trunk and there's a guy inside, cop. And then in Pulp Fiction, they go to the trunk shop and it's... The trunk shot is at the beginning of the film when uh, Jules and uh, Vincent are getting their guns out of the back of the car. <laughs> and Vincent goes, we should have had shotguns. Oh, yeah. And, <laughs> and then, then he's got a shotgun. I didn't put the that third together. Time it's a guy with a shotgun in the back of the car. <laughs> <laughs> I love I this. Like, oh. This, you know, because he's – we've already noticed so much. He loves to use the radio for mm-hmm. music, for practical yep. music. I love yep. as he drives off and kind of that Doppler effect as the sound dies yeah. out in the distance. And then he drives back and you hear it just fade back in. He's, I think that it's one of the things I really have enjoyed is seeing his, because it feels like we're seeing his skill set kind of expand. Like every time yeah. he tries something new and then the mm-hmm. next film, he just perfects it. <laughs> Well, the great thing, too, is that, you know, we've talked about 
Tarantino's use of practical music throughout his films. Um, and in this one, practical music is all over the place as well. You know, most, most prominently, I think, with the Delphonics tape that keeps getting played in Max's car. Um, but but Pam Greer in this movie, she gets her own theme songs. So practical music is not used in the film just about every time Pam Greer is walking around because she gets her own theme songs. It sets her up as like as like almost this goddess figure, which I, I think that she probably is that in Quentin Tarantino's mind. Like she she walks in and she gets her own ambient music that that travels with her. She doesn't need to have the practical stuff. Well, it shows that was pretty cool. I think it shows his ability to take homage. You know, this being I think one of his strongest in terms of mm-hmm. just a singular focus of the black black exploitation of the seventies, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. and that had all sorts of music over, laid over the top. And so I think right. it shows that he's willing to, you know, he doesn't get stuck in his one thing. He doesn't have to do it every time. He doesn't. It doesn't have to be uh, Clint Eastwood in every Clint Eastwood movie he directs. Um, yeah, as the grumpy old man, he's able to. <laughs> Quentin Tarantino can kind of can mix in. It's that hip hop that we're talking about. He's able to sample. Yeah, the hip hop so well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, let's. I, I actually have this stuff pulled up. I think the listeners might be interested to just hear some of the homages. So, of course, Foxy Brown is definitely uh, a big homage because of her you know um just about everything about this movie <laughs> is in reference to foxy brown pam greer plays foxy brown they use the same font like i said for the title sequence i haven't seen the movie but i want to see it now in reference and then also there's a there's a movie called coffee um which also st- stars pam greer and those are kind of the two uh most referential black black exploitation films that are referenced in in jackie brown um and then there's just a bunch of stuff like uh, the the uh, across 110th Street song is is uh, the alternate alternate theme for the 1971 movie across from 110th Street, which is also a black exploitation film. So, uh, you know they they keep on going back to this well, and, and I and I really feel like I need to study up and watch some of these movies in order to get get a little bit more of the ambiance that that Tarantino has built around this film. Yeah, I think that's the. The biggest struggle with choosing him as our director is I mm-hmm. really wish I had more time to just dig through right. the stuff that he references in each movie. I think you could somebody start up a second cast, you do all of this, <laughs> you're going to need to not have a full-time job. Because there's just yeah, exactly. so much out there. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's interesting because you wish that you had all of that knowledge, but I feel like it doesn't detract if you don't have it. Um, you know, it's, it's something that is available to you and it can enhance your experience, but it's not necessarily there to, it's, you don't need to have that in order to, to understand what's going on. I think Quentin Tarantino makes these movies as much for himself as he does anybody else. Mm -hmm. And he respects kind of the viewer's time by making a good film regardless of whether or not you get the references but the number of things just hidden throughout the film on (laughs) you know reading the names on the uh, list of apartments for uh, Jackie Brown's building they're all references to famous people from that era of film so I think he does a really good job of making kind of a movie with broad appeal 
Yeah. Which is sh- not considering content matter. <laughs> I think there are people who are really turned off by it that way. But I think whether or not you're super into film, if you like his style, then it it's it works for everybody. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, you you re- you referenced the uh, the apartment building. Sid Haig S Haig lives in the same building on the beachfront condos with uh with Ordell. So, uh. Yeah, it 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 is. It's a great little wink to the people who know what it is, and and it also allows you allows you, like I said, with Quentin Tarantino movies, to go back to the well. You you can watch a Quentin Tarantino movie, and it has great suspense and interesting uh, stories going forward. The first time you watch it, you're kind of wrapped around that and like what's going to happen next. But you can always go back to the well and watch it again and again because there's always something new to see, um, which is great. Uh, I do like the uh, little good good cop bad cop routine, and I feel like Michael Keaton was really good in this movie. Michael Keaton always strikes me as weird. He's such a weirdo. <laughs> I think that was what made Birdman so good was he just reached pinnacle weirdness, uh-huh. and we went, "Oh yeah, there's that's Michael Keaton. That's what mm-hmm. that's what he's about." <laughs> I also love Chris Tucker in this movie because, like, this is like I believe this is pre Fifth Element Chris Tucker. You mean, uh, uh, what is it, Roddy, 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 shit, never mind, move on. <laughs> anyway, Fifth Element, now that's a movie we should watch. Do um, on. Yeah, it's like right before, I guess, like, Chris Tucker was in this movie, and then and then Fifth Element was released right afterward. And then, of course, the uh, the Tour de Force, which is the Rush Hour trilogy. Which such, I a good, such a good mix, those two. <laughs> <laughs> but I do, I do really, really love Chris Tucker, and, the, and he makes his mark. And I love that during the opening title sequence, it's Chris Tucker as Beaumont, at the, as he's the last titled character because he is the type of guy who can have, you know, he's in the only in the movie for twenty minutes, yet he makes a pretty strong impression. In fact, I think he's only in the movie for one scene. Yeah, he gets thrown <laughs> in a trunk and shot almost immediately. Right, and I understand. Like I said, that 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 opening does take a while to develop, but it does set up the danger for the rest of the movie. And you ha- you understand a kind of what a psycho Ordell is, and then b how much danger uh, Jackie Brown is in. I like so. it. Does do a really good job of setting up Ordell because he's kind of a victim of his own personality. He's. Mm-hmm been really sharp about his business you know he's got that money stashed away but he keeps surrounding himself by complete idiots (laughs) with the exception of jackie brown (laughs) yeah he's definitely he wants to be the smartest person in the room and he does that by surrounding himself with stupid people and it ultimately (laughs) costs him in the end yeah um (laughs) i don't know if this is a reference or not but i do want to bring it up the second time that he goes to the bail bonds office to transfer um, Beaumont's bail to Jackie, he he's sitting in the office, and then uh, Max comes out and c- c- comes out of the bathroom, uh, which is eventually, I think, where Michael Keaton's character was hiding. But he comes out, and then Ordell goes, "Ah ah ah! Didn't hear you wash your hands." But the way he says "Ah ah ah," it sounds exactly like Nidri from uh, Jurassic Park. Which came- ah ah ah. He first. didn't say the magic word. Well, Jurassic Park came first. Jurassic Park was out in, two, in 1992. But Samuel L. Jackson is in that scene. He's the one who's on the computer. When so the, he just went to the most annoying voice he could think of. <laughs> exactly. The ah-ah-ah uh, 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 didn't say the magic word. Anyway, I thought that was ridiculously uh, stupid. 
but <laughs> it uh, definitely was a reference for me, and I loved it. I feel like people always forget that Samuel Jackson was in Jurassic Park. He's like my favorite part of Jurassic Park. Oh, yeah. He plays the... What is his job position? He's like the operations manager. Like, he basically... Yeah, he's, he's, he operates the park. Is that the only movie role where he doesn't use the F word? <laughs> I don't know. Uh, he, I'm pretty sure he doesn't use it in any of the Marvel movies. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe you see um, him mouth it. Speaking um, of the the world, I wanted to mm-hmm. ask you what you thought about the how the tone was sort of subdued compared to other Tarantino movies. He does so much, you know, we talked about kind of the comic nature of it, some of the yeah. bombastic shots and action of most of his films. But this one mm-hmm. was really kind of the most grounded in reality. Um you think that this is that's one of the reasons that it falls through the cracks? Why everybody sees every other Quentin Tarantino movie but this one? Well, I think that one of the reasons why it falls through the cracks is that this movie is reminiscent of many movies that were made during the same period of like mid nineties thrillers, and it that it has that flavor in spades. I mean, you have the mall is prominently. Uh, is a big prominent feature in this movie, and nobody goes to malls anymore. And the mall is like so '90s; it's like crazy '90s mall. Um, I, I feel like it does kind of date itself, and and I think you're right. I think that subdued nature, yeah. I think that you know this movie is referential, but it also it it lives in such a distinctly mid '90s place, in kind of a way that. His other films don't. I mean, I did reference last week that Pulp Fiction is a very 90s movie, but it's so stylized and, like you said, bombastic. You know, there's no Jackrabbit Slims in Jackie Brown. Um, there's it's, it's, it's a little bit cartoony almost in its display. And this one is, like, very distinctly mid-90s kind of crime thriller. Uh, and I think it could fall into that category with a lot of other films of the era. So I, I think you're right. I think that that subdued nature does does make it one of those movies that falls through the cracks for people. I um, do think it is the the noir film, the closest that Tarantino yeah. gets to a noir film with Max Cherry, the detective, mm-hmm. and the way that you know he meets the girl and he kind of immediately is attracted to her, <laughs> and he does all of this really dangerous, risky stuff for I her know. with little motivation. Well. There's a little motivation there, but it's also a guy who's a little bit disillusioned, I think. You know, he's he's in his mid to late 50s. Uh, he doesn't really, it doesn't seem like he's got a lot going on. I mean, his car's a piece of shit. Man. Did you see the seats <laughs> in his car? <laughs> They're like ripped up. Um, you know, he doesn't, he really, I, I feel like he just doesn't have anything going on. And he's he's become disillusioned with his life. He doesn't want to be a bail bondsman anymore. Uh, he's questioning kind of his whole existence and in some ways you could say he's having maybe a little bit of a late midlife crisis and you know jackie brown walks into his life and and he decides you know to hell with it let's let's go for it (laughs) let's let's uh let's let's have a little bit of adventure it seems to me like his life the adventure that is part of his job like sitting in people's houses with a stun gun at 2 a.m um that just doesn't do it for him anymore he wants to he wants to experience something that has a little bit more of a uh just a little bit more of a, a fulfillment to it, I think. And I think that the kiss at the end of the movie is really pretty sweet, in my opinion. And it's also really uh, it's really satisfying, because it's not like, you know, we know that these two are not meant for each other. 
but there is like a love and a respect that builds between them throughout the movie um as they lean on and trust one another so it's it's something that um that is understandable like he's not going to go to spain with her <laughs> you know they're not going to ride off in the sunset together but there is an acknowledgement of like this this mutually beneficial experience that they both have been through if if not harrowing yeah, I really I was trying to remember at the end. I was pretty sure that it was a sad ending in the sense that he does not go with her. Um mm-hmm. and I was really bummed a second time that he didn't go <laughs> chasing after. Yeah, but that's the thing. It's I do you really think that they would have like lived happily ever after? No, I don't, I don't know. I never got you that. You can end the movie that way. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I I I just really I I like the movie so much. It, it as as it kind of builds up, the ending is so satisfying, and Jackie Brown is just great. Pam Greer is great in this movie. Like you really want to root for her, and they do a great job of setting her up as the everyman of the film. Like she's the one that you identify with. Like she, you know, she's just trying to to get by. Basically, you know, they they let you know that she's only making sixteen thousand dollars a year, so she's supplementing her income by you know. Uh, pulling some some dirty deeds on the side um you know she works for this like crappy air like the worst airline in north america (laughs) um but she's our regular person like you want you really do want to root for her and also ordell is just like the worst he's so bad um i don't know i maybe we should, you just want to walk through the characters i think we should do that because the characters are so strong here yeah one thing so i wanted start... to yeah oh, go. um just while we're on pam greer one mm-hmm. of the greatest travesties was i was watching uh, tarantino and he was talking about the response to the film and how he was surprised that robert forrester had gotten nominated for an oscar but pam greer and sam jackson hadn't yeah and i went and looked do you know what won the Oscar that year? It's a travesty. Pam Greer should have at least been nominated, if not won. Helen Hunt in As Good As It Gets. That movie Best is actress. a good movie, though. It's a good movie. Uh, nope. I disagree. <laughs> you know what? I think that if you get... I I just I can't get upset about awards. They're ridiculous on, on principle. So, whatever. That's fair. But still, I was pissed. <laughs> this art I- is so much better than that art. This one is the best. And that art didn't get nominated, so that art... But that's a travesty, because these this room of people who subjectively decide on these wards, mostly for political reasons, didn't put it into the running. I, I just find awards ridiculous in, in a lot of ways. Whatever, oh, that's my rant on awards. Put a cap on that. <laughs> <laughs> There's going to be no award talk on direct. Yeah, I I mean I I I do I like the current Oscar format where they have up to 10 best picture nominees. But like I don't need an award ceremony to tell me what the best movie of the year is. Like I I can make that decision for myself and it can be my own and I will hold it dear in my heart. And there you go. That's that's all I need. I got a little gold guy in my heart. And, that's beautiful. Uh, and and I and yeah. I don't know. It's it's like sports. It's ultimately it's entertaining, but it's ultimately futile. <laughs> uh, and you know what a big sports fan I am. Uh, you know. Yeah, no, I. <laughs> you get truly upset when the Seahawks lose. I do, but you know, I'm trying to be. I'm trying to be better, Ringo. I'm trying. <laughs> good, good stuff. Anyway, <laughs> all right. Who do you want to? 
Who do you want to talk about? Well, let's start off with Foxy Brown, man. You kind of heard my two cents on her. What do you think of her character? I think it's a I, character. And by Foxy Brown, I mean Jackie Brown. Sorry. <laughs> I, I know what you're So, yeah, her name, uh, the character is actually changed from the book specifically mm-hmm. to add Brown to the last name. Because it's yep. Jackie something else in the novel. I think it's Briar. Um, and I thought that. that was, that's fun. Fun, fun trivia. Um, fun, fun. I think what's really impressive about her character is how well she plays the field because Uh not remembering how it ended i couldn't decide who i really hope that she was not screwing over max cherry that was the only one i was hoping that she was playing the cops and ordell against each other and that in the end she and max cherry would escape um and i know that she does but i couldn't remember the extent of it so i was very yeah happy to see them work together and do the the three bag switch. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, th- th- that scene at the end of the movie when uh, Max Cherry goes to Ordell's house and it's all dark and Ordell has the gun on him. Like, that scene is very tense the first time you watch this movie. I was like, oh, he's going to get killed. He's definitely going to die here. Because you know how insane that Ordell can be. Yeah. Like, Ordell has killed people over much less. I love, though, that. That moment when, because he keeps turning off the lights when Ordell comes to her apartment yeah. early on, and when Jackie keeps turning him back on, and finally when you hear that gun click and him go, mm-hmm. "Is that what I think it is?" <laughs> I think it. They do a good job of setting her up as a strong character throughout. Yeah. You know, she lets the cops search her bags, even though the money and the drugs are in there. She doesn't know about the drugs, but she knows about the money, and she right. just just lights a cigarette and lets them do what they're gonna do. She just yep. is good at accepting her fate and changing it when she can. Well, and she, you know, that move, that scene, I think, is a turning point when she pulls the gun on Ordell. That's that's really like plot point one in the movie because you're, they're setting this up where Ordell is just going on basically the same through the same motions as he went through with Beaumont. Um, but as soon as as soon as she turns the tables, you're like, "Oh shit, this lady means business," and I can't wait to see how she's going to overcome this kind of unstoppable evil force that is Ordell. Um, so moving out to Ordell, man, Samuel Jackson kills it. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah, I hate great... Ordell so much with a nasty hairstyle. Yeah, and the goatee, you just want to like yank that thing oh. off of his face. And then at the end, when he means business, and he lets his hair out of the ponytail, I know. Just going for it. It's like, uh, but he does such a good job and such a turn from Pulp Fiction, in my opinion. Because in Pulp Fiction, he's also terrifying. Don't get me wrong. Like the opening scene when he kills, when he guns down the kids uh, in the apartment, like he's terrifying in that scene. But then he has like, he's the redemptive story of that whole movie. Like at the end, he just wants to walk the earth like Kato. Yeah, he's trying Um, to go against his instincts in that one. And this movie and jackie brown he is just pure instinct he just as soon as he thinks he's getting screwed he's shooting somebody i know man but he's also a thinker and i like it like there's that scene uh right before he kills robert de niro's character where he is in the car and robert de niro's character says that he saw or you know that uh I i think he hasn't revealed that he saw max yet um but but there's just like a, a hold on him for like 10 seconds of him just working all this shit out in his head. And then he just opens his eye and he goes, it's Jackie Brown. And he like figures it out. Like he, he is smart 
And I like that about him. Like he's definitely a um he's a calculated person. Like but he's just one step behind Jackie Brown. Like everybody in this movie has has everything figured out except they're just one step behind Jackie Brown. Jackie Brown just just has like one one is this one move ahead. Um and she's using that to her advantage, which I really like. Uh what do you think about Ordell's relationship with Lewis? I'm curious what your take is. Now that I've now that I listened to this interview, I'm kind of thrown off by it. I I see it in a little bit different light. So I want to get your take first before I okay. kind of talk about what I drummed up. Their relationship? Yeah. Like uh I think it's like I think it's like you said like um you know, they met in prison 20 years ago. And I think it's just kind of a guy who's always been uh you know, on the side like like uh in the in the uh, in the bullpen ready to be called up by Ordelk because he knows that he's a buffoon and he's and he's dumb but he's also will fly off the handle like crazy um not afraid to do what has to be right not not afraid to do whatever has to be done not to mention the man is punctual if nothing else <laughs> he does not want to be late so you know he does what he's told and he's basically he's his uh what do you call that? Is it a mook? That's what the that's what the bald move guys always say. <laughs> it's uh it's, it's he's just like the he's the bumbling um the bumbling, you know, buffoon guy, but he's he's the muscle. He's like the big dog um in in that Warner Brothers cartoon. He's like the big dog who walks around and there's a little dog uh, you know yipping around him. Although the little dog in this case is actually more of a crocodile named Ordell. <laughs> <laughs> What, You're what, painting a picture what, with your words. What can I say? What 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 did this interview reveal to you? So it had um, it was Tarantino and Robert De Niro, and I think Robert De Niro gave one word answers, and then Tarantino would talk for yeah. a couple minutes. Um, but he Tarantino was talking about how like this is a a love story, the love story between Max and Jackie Brown. But uh-huh. if there was a minor love story, it's between Ordell and Lewis and. His take on it, and I think maybe it was just too subtle for this, was that, you know, Lewis is the closest that Ordell will ever get to loving somebody. Like, he's mm. not really capable of it, but Lewis is kind of the the closest thing. Because, and whatever their adventures were in Detroit that they talk about, clearly uh-huh. he was something better than. And this movie, you see uh, Ordell just kind of disappointed because... You know, whatever Lewis used to be, he is not anymore. And I thought it was an interesting intent. I just don't know that it came across. So that's why I was, after I saw it, I was like, oh, yeah, I guess I can kind of dig that out of the the cracks. But, you know, it was, and I think Lewis and Ardell were both, I think De Niro did a fantastic job. But I think their chemistry was not that. It didn't reach that, no, I think. It didn't get. it didn't get that way to me. It was more of like a... I mean, so we open up the movie. He's Ordell is explaining the business to Lewis. Um, so th- I guess this is like right at the beginning of of Lewis coming into Ordell's team. Um, but yeah, I, I didn't really get that at all. I thought it was more just like Ordell knows that this guy can handle himself when he needs to, and so he's a good guy to have on your side. He's like the the quiet guy who uh, you don't want to mess with because yeah, he's, he's got a, he's got a hair trigger watching Jackson just when he thinks about it and then he decides he's going to kill Lewis. Yeah. 
is such a fantastic shot. Just again, the one point perspective, just from the back of the van forward. And he just leans across and he looks like he feels bad about it, but Uh he's just so murderously (laughs) self-sufficient. He has, he doesn't see any other choice when he deals with people. (laughs) Yeah. It's, it's weird, man. That guy loves to shoot people, which I really don't understand why he didn't shoot Max at the end. I mean, I get it that like, he doesn't want to kill him because he doesn't want to jeopardize getting his $500,000. Um, but at the same time, like, it seemed like, it seemed like Max had done enough to where or- Ordell should have shot him. Yeah, there was, he, Ordell oddly lets his guard down when yeah. he gets to, after all the threats in the car, like, if anything happens, you're the, he should right. have been able to shoot Max, not maybe kill him. But right. for sure, like when he just lets Max stand in the door and then he enters a dark room with Jackie Brown. <laughs> like, well, yeah, I mean, that was a dumb gun move at by his him. side. Yeah, it was a weird, a weird ending for such a malicious character. Well, but it is interesting because it is set up earlier in the scene where he goes to kill Jackie originally. Uh, he's so nice and cordial to her. He does have a rapport and a way that he acts around Jackie. And he knows that if he would have walked in there, I don't know, dude, like he probably should have walked in there with a max, with a gun to Max's head. Yeah. But he walked, you're right. He walks in kind of goofily and like trying to, to deescalate the situation. I mean, they do, they do set it up that he needs the combination in order to open the safe and get the money out. But you you could probably do that with just a gun to Max's head and say, give me the combination. Or another a Mexican standoff. Do it old school. Yeah, <laughs> do it old school. Quentin Tarantino's do it, favorite. Do it Tarantino style. Yeah, but, but you know, hands down, I feel like Samuel Jackson kind of rules this movie. Um, and he's terrifying. It's, it's, it's like, I feel like it's on par with, uh, with uh, Javier Bardem in... No Country for Old Men. Like, it's that kind of scariness. It's like, you do not want to be in a room with this guy. Well, it's the the Dungeons, right? It's the chaotic evil. You just yep. cannot, it, when you cannot predict, that is the most dangerous. You're totally right. He is absolutely chaotic evil. <laughs> yeah, man. So what did you think about Max Cherry? I love your take on it, that he's basically your noir, your, uh, your you know, private eye, except he's a bail bondsman instead. He's I thought just... he was great. Cool as a cucumber is like the phrase, <laughs> like when I think of that phrase, Max Cherry, because he just, when Ordell's got a gun on him, he just play, looks him in the eye and is just like, here's the deal. Here's the Yeah. When he's in the store and uh, Lewis sees him and he just kind of waves and turns around and walks off. Like he just, every scene that he's in, he's just playing it or sitting outside the prison. He's just got a book open. Yeah. He's just and chilling he just, He's all business. He just, whenever, especially when things get hot, he just, he's just rational. Yeah, I, I like it. it. It actually reminds me a lot of the, um, of the, the, the advice that's given in Reservoir Dogs when he's like, uh, I can't, we can't remember who was the name of the big guy, the, the, the thing, right? <laughs> after, after Mr. Orange tells him the story, he's like, you know exactly what, to, how to handle that situation. Just shit your pants and keep on moving. <laughs> like, that's basically what I feel like, uh, I feel like that's how Max operates. Like he does, he never lets on that. He's, you know, 
completely terrified. I also probably think he's had a gun pointed at him plenty of times, having 15,000 bonds under his belt and waiting in people's houses with stun guns. <laughs> <laughs> like, he, he's, he's a well-weathered guy. Um, but I also think he's got nothing to lose. Like I said earlier, I think that's the reason why he embarks on this entire journey. Yes, I think he loves uh, loves Jackie, but I also think that he's just got nothing to lose, and he's like, I might as well put it all on the line for this lady because I because I love her. So well, he, he turns in. That's what makes him an endearing character. That's what mm-hmm. makes him. He doesn't come across as a rube. He just comes across as like a teenage high schooler. You know, like yeah, hearing her music and then immediately going and buying that Delphonics tape because. Yep. I got to know what, you know, I want to get to know her. I want to share her interests. <laughs> I do love that scene at the end of the movie when he's riding in the car with uh, with Ordell. And Ordell's like, I didn't know you liked the Delphonics. <laughs> <laughs> yep, they're pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> and he's, yeah, it's just, and they talk on the phone late at night. Like there's that quick cut uh, mm-hmm. towards right before the the exchange goes down where they're talking on the phone deep into the night, <laughs> you know, those are, it was just such a, and it's weird for Tarantino cause it's such a sweet little, he just does these sweet little things that I don't know any character in any of the other films we'll watch that has that combination of not a rube, but a yeah. really nice guy. Not a rube, but a nice guy. Hmm. Yeah, it doesn't really exist in Pulp Fiction, does it? <laughs> Definitely <laughs> yeah, doesn't it, it, exist in, in Kill Bill. Yeah, but there's you know there's the heroic people, which um, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I, I want I want to keep an eye out for that because it's a good it's a good archetype. Um, just like the good guys, you know, like it's it's hard not to root for them. And speaking of which, uh, Michael Keaton in this movie is Ray Nicolette. I feel like he did. We we talked about it, but I like how his character comes across. Like, yeah, he's going through the good cop bad cop routine, and he's a good cop, so immediately you're supposed to like him. But I like his whole demeanor, and he does end up being the hero of the movie in some ways because he's the one who steps out and guns down Ordell finally. See, I never really warmed. Even in the end, he just mm-hmm. he makes me think of. Maybe it's because I watched Point Break recently, and uh-huh. Johnny Utah Kenner's is just the worst cop. <laughs> he just he does not get his man ever. He just uh-huh. gets drugged through more shit. And I feel like Michael Keaton has a little bit of that problem throughout the film where he's like, Well, I don't have anything on you, so psh, damn. That's too yep. bad. <laughs> well, you know, it's uh but he does end up getting him in the end. He gets his guy and he ultimately gets what he wants at the end of the movie. It's not like he was going after Pam Greer in this movie. But he doesn't really get him in the sense of justice. He just That's true. shoots it. <laughs> yeah, that is the question. Is justice served here? Um, and I don't know, man. Well, I think I it is, know. but it's served with a side of irony because yeah. in reality, justice, you know, an eye for an eye is not a good system of justice, good system right. of justice. But it mm-hmm. it uh it appeals to us because it is, yeah. you know, appeals to our base emotions where we immediately right. just want to hit back a proportionate, yep. if not disproportionate response to right. the wrongs that occur. And so yep. I think that's why we're fine with him being shot, despite this whole ATF investigation that should end <laughs> with him being arrested, his money confiscated, a trial and all of that. 
sent to prison forever. I mean, it's it's a uh, what he's doing is pretty atrocious in terms of basically giving people guns to murder other people with. He's the supplier of of murder weapons, and he does um, it to gangsters for the most part, as they point yeah, exactly. out at the start of the film. It's not well, even like you, he's. <laughs> If you giving it to people gun. with a cause, it's somebody who yeah. wants to look cool because they saw a gun in a movie. <laughs> well, also, like, if they could buy guns legally, they would. Or if they could buy these types of guns legally, they would. But the, first of all, these guns aren't available uh, legally. And second of all, these people can't buy weapons because they're all convicted felons. Um. So, yeah. Uh. So he's the underground guy. Yeah. You know, I, I, I really like that too, Levi, is that, you know, revenge stories are so so uh satisfying in many ways and we're about to embark on a two-part revenge story with kill bill coming up um but you're right man like does it's hard for me to watch a movie like this and be like well ordell got what was coming to him like uh at the end i feel like he kind of got off easy because he never had to go to prison he never had to go through all of the shit that all these people are going through for him that pam greer went through and that beaumont went through um but but uh, he he just gets to he just gets to turn off the lights and and then that's it for him. I don't know. It's interesting. It's odd too that it's not given just historically how a Hollywood film would end. You'd think that Max would shoot him, that he would yeah. be the White Knight after everything mm-hmm. else that he's done. But they leave it to they leave his hands clean. You know, he, he doesn't yeah. ever really have to kill anybody. He's the guy with the stun gun, right? No, I like that. I do like that a lot. A um, couple more characters here. Melanie. What do you think of Melanie, Bridget Fonda's character? <laughs> I thought it was just, it was, it's the the Shakespearean comedic relief in a weird way between her and Lewis <laughs> because they just they just get high and watch yeah. TV. They do a really good job of looking like how somebody <laughs> looks getting high and watching TV. Yeah. Um, I do, I do like the uh, the use of television throughout the movie. You know, in Reservoir Dogs, we had K Billy Super Sounds of the seventies, and in Jackie Brown, you basically just have TV as the medium that is, you know, progressively called back to. And I think it's um, a Peter Fonda film on TV that we see her. Dad. Yeah, the, well, the fourth the fourth time we see it, it's yeah, it's her dad actually. It's a Peter Fonda movie. That's where I think that's the one where they they have like the cop chase that they're watching. Um, and sometimes the TV reflects what's happening in the film. Like one time they cut to the TV and it's right after Pam Greer meets with the cops at the police station and basically sells out Ordell. Um, right after that, they cut to the television. Melody's watching TV and it's like this lady who's getting slapped around with a newspaper because she because uh, she betrayed oh, this guy. Right. Named he just the, keeps <laughs> Yeah, the mad dog murderer. She betrayed the mad dog murderer. So it's like, oh, well, that's a direct correlation. Um, and then that made me want to keep looking. Like, there, there's a TV scene where Beaumont is watching TV when uh, when Ordell shows up at his apartment. And they just show, like, a close-up. And I couldn't tell who the guy was on the TV. And uh, it looked like it was might have been Jimmy Hoffa, but I wasn't sure. Um, but he says, my pleasure of lim- living demands that I have a good-looking woman. Yeah. And I was like, what does that mean? I don't know. <laughs> the well, only thing I could think of was that it's a call forward to him selling out uh, Jackie Brown because Beaumont was the one who sold her out. Well, it correlates, too, with how Odell rolls 
I mean, he oh, yeah. has multiple women, and Melanie's one of them. That That's he true. just, I have all these girls on the side. That's just how I, I'm not dating them or anything. Right. That's a good call, man. That is a good call. Yeah, my pleasure of living demands I have a good-looking woman. He's got good-looking women stashed around, uh, stashed around town. I, I just thought it was great because I feel like Melanie was kind of the ideal person for him or the ideal person that he would want as one of these henchwomen that he has. And then Jackie Brown is just complete the, completely the antithesis of that. Like, she's not taking the shit. She's not lazy. She's not She's not uh, conniving, although she is kind of conniving. But she's conniving because she got back to do a corner. Um, you know, she's so, I, I, you know, I, I think it's kind of interesting that, yeah, he's got these ladies stashed around. And that I think that does call back to that original TV clip. One thing that I think Mel, that Fada does really well is the... Uh, she when Odell points out that or Odell says that she's he can trust Melanie to be Melanie mm-hmm. and you're yep. not even surprised when she's like we could just take the money and you're like yeah right. of course she's gonna say that like what else is she going to yeah nobody's you can surprised trust her to... everybody knows thing. that Melanie is gonna be Melanie down to her being a pain when they need to go to do the exchange <laughs> and being a total pain in the ass when they're trying to get out to the parking lot. I mean, she yeah. really, none of that comes as a surprise. Well, I th- I was pretty damn surprised the first time I saw it. He pulls out the gun. I was, I was surprised by that. I didn't think that it would come to her, her immediately dying. Oh yeah. No, that's, but that's, that's the difference. Melanie, you understand everything she does, but you yeah. don't Lewis is another cannonball. That's why he's, <laughs> he's Rodell's right hand man, because you, Never, you're never sure. Yeah, he's he's definitely a loose cannon. But he goes um, from zero to sixty just <laughs> so fast. Zero to a hundred, man. And even Ordell's like, you couldn't just slap her. Yeah, I mean that's what Ordell would have done. Uh, interesting thing here as well that I thought was that um, kind of changing gears here, but four hundred fifty thousand dollars is not fu money. Maybe it was in like 1995, but I feel like you would run out of money if you just like. That's not like, oh, I can go live forever on four hundred fifty thousand dollars. Yeah, but I think it points to how short-sighted he is because yeah. he's not well, dealing too, guns though? on a on a large scale. He's dealing guns to gangsters, mostly well, guys who don't know what they're getting, and so he thinks that he's set despite having socked away only half a million. And by right. the, if and if he agreed to the deal with Jackie, the original one where she goes to jail, like she'd be taking twenty percent of it. Yeah, but he, I mean, he he said he was going to get two million. That was his original plan was to get two million dollars and then spend the rest of his life spending. But this whole thing is like five hundred thousand dollars. Which okay, I'm looking at it now. Apparently, it's about seven hundred eighty-four thousand dollars. So maybe that's enough money, but it's not enough money to live like you're not going to you live know. large. Not going to live large on that for the rest of your life. Like you can, if you buy a house, that's like all gone. I mean, maybe a nice condo or a townhouse, but this is LA real estate we're talking about. Yeah, anyway, but the housing I, market wasn't the same back then either. <laughs> that's true. That is true. But yeah, it's um, you know, I just I felt like it wasn't enough money to. It seemed like the the, the amount of money that if you if you didn't think about it, you'd think you could live on that forever. But and I guess these people are midlife, so maybe, maybe that's enough. I just don't know. 
maybe if you invested correctly, it just seemed to be like like five hundred thousand dollars wasn't like all the money in the world like these people were making it out to be. Did you know that that actually was five hundred thousand dollars? Wow! They, were showing? they used real currency. Woo! <laughs> Probably had an armed guard on that. Yeah. Um, also, turns out it doesn't look like that much. You could fit it in the bottom yeah. of a shopping bag. Yeah, as long as it's in hundreds. If it's in twenties, it's a ton of cash. Yeah. Uh, last one. Hundred dollar bill. <laughs> last one I wanted to hit. Last character I wanted to hit was uh, was Lewis. So Robert De Niro's character. Like, how did Quentin Tarantino get Robert De Niro to be in this movie and play this small of a role? Because he kills it in this role, but like, like I, I couldn't help but ask myself, like, why is Robert De Niro in this movie? Because he makes the pitch that Lewis is an interesting character who can only be expressed through body language. I think he basically mm. threw the gauntlet down for De Niro and said, <laughs> "Make this character interesting without saying anything." And yeah. De Niro does a pretty good, pretty oh, damn good it. job. He does an amazing job. He he, and I, see, and, he yeah. acts old. You know, like he's past his prime Mm -hmm. and he's just reached this kind of vegetative state. And when he gets dangerous, it's it just gives you a hint at what he's capable of. But that time has come and gone. (laughs) That's true. Yeah. I mean, he does an amazing job in this role. And I do know that Taxi Driver is one of Quentin Tarantino's favorite movies. So it's probably a dream to have him in this movie as well. Um, Think about Tarantino coming off of Pulp Fiction, too. Yeah. You know. He, I'm sure anybody would have been in his film at that point to be like, oh, what's his next crazy thing? Well, yeah. It turns out it's a fairly linear story. I guess Robert De Niro just did The Intern, so... <laughs> <laughs> Maybe it's not... I, but I, I don't think of... It's a, that's like post-Meet the Parents, you know, three Robert De Niro. This is like... This is still like 90s De Niro. This is like casino, post-casino De Niro. Anyway... But this uh, takes him out of that particular, you know, type that he has trouble yeah. with now too. Then and now probably with being the the gangster, the thug. Yeah, what was he a gangster? And he was a gangster in um, what was that movie? That David O. Russell movie it was set in the seventies. Shit, I can't remember it. Uh, Christian Bale was in it. It'll come back to me. Yeah, but I have he no idea what you're... he had like a cameo as like an old gangster in that movie, and it was really good. Um, that's I would love to see Robert De Niro in more stuff like this. Doesn't he show up in, uh, not Silver Linings Play, American Hustle? Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. Too? That's what I'm talking about. Yeah, great minds, Levi. Yes. Um, one more thing I wanted to talk about is the three takes at the end of the movie. So the three takes during the money exchange in the mall. I like the device. I'm not sure if it was necessary. Do you think it was and, just? Tarantino wanting to get his signature on it. I don't know, and and you're like, who am I to honestly? Who am I to second guess Quentin Tarantino? Like he's he's Quentin Tarantino. He could do whatever the hell he wants in the movie. But I, I was just like, it's cool, and you know, we get to return to the scene three times and see it from three different angles for three different characters. I wonder what it would look like if it was all spliced together or all cut together instead of, um. Instead of presented it in three different ways, uh, and maybe it was too hectic, maybe it was too too much of a like like the thrillers of the day, which basically all end in like a shootout or like some big old heist scene. It, it was more of like a character study than it was like a heist, which really is what it was. 
um, w- with a few things going on in the side. What, well, did, what plays, did you think about it? I think it plays with you a little bit. I you you can guess where the money's going to go, but it does the you almost learn about what truly happened the same way that uh, Ordell puts it together. Oh. Because there's the Ooh. what the plot that Jackie has told him, and then mm-hmm. there is what he hears from Lewis as yep. to what happened, and then you get the reality of what happened. Yeah, it's a strong take. Like maybe that is we watch what happened in Ordell's mind when he's sitting there for ten seconds thinking it all out. That I, makes a lot of sense, man. Yeah, and I I like it. I the you have to be. I think it can be gimmicky, and I think that yeah, it's something that Tarantino easily could have reused a couple times in the film. I think if he had wanted to sort of follow his reputation. But he really mm-hmm. just keeps it to the end. It's very simple, and I like I like seeing scenes like that through the different perspectives because it allows you to take a moment to reset between yeah. you know you're rooting for Pam Greer and then you're watching Melanie and Luis in this Shakespearean bumble. <laughs> yeah, where you're just kind of laughing at her jerking him around and <laughs> up until she shoots, and it's her, like holy shit, and then panics. Yeah. You know, just yeah. full flight. And then watching Max Cherry just calm and cool, come in, pick up the bag, right back out. You know, and even he gets to his car and he just looks around and yeah. nobody's following him. Nobody's the wiser. Yeah, he's like, I got away with it. And then the, and then the Delphonics are playing as he drives off. <laughs> um, two more things. I just want to, or three more things I want to touch on. Did you notice the QT uh, cameo in this movie? Uh, I wondered if it was, and I confirmed that it was the, the, the voicemail. Yeah, except it's just him going, end of message, <laughs> like a robot. <laughs> so, cool. Uh, <laughs> um, another thing, the phone calls in this movie. This movie is full of phone calls. This movie's like 40% phone calls. <laughs> and I was wondering if maybe that was one of the reasons why it seemed a little bit out of place in terms of Tarantino, in terms of his first two movies, is that... People are talking on the phone to each other a lot. In the first two movies, everybody's face-to-face having conversations, long-take conversations from a single angle. On In this show, it's like phone call, phone call, phone call, phone call, phone call. Um, lots and lots of phone calls. And but, how does Ordell know Max Cherry's phone number by heart? Because he dials it into his cell phone. These are things we must ponder. Because Levi. he keeps calling him to bail people out. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that I thought it was just that Ordell basically has some kind of crazy math memory where he could remember numbers like no nobody's business. Oh, that would be a good sneaky plot. He's actually got photographic memory. It's yeah. the nineties; like people weren't forgetting phone numbers yet. Back That's then. true. That is true. I still remember my grandpa's phone number. I also like how they definitely give Max Cherry's three different phone numbers. They don't give the area <laughs> code, but. You could, you could. Uh, I think it's eight oh eight. Is that the? LA it's just one of those code? ones that you don't see often in movies. People giving out like oh, a bogus yeah. number. Like, I loved it, full. man. I, the five 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 I could do without. It's three one zero three one zero. There's three one zero, the two one three, the three two three, and the six six one. If you're in the uh, in L.A. Oh, and the four two four. Don't forget the four two. Those are all of. How do you know that? Because I looked it up on Google. Oh, 
If right. only there was a place where you could ask questions and get answers. <laughs> yeah, but under what pretext did you go to Google and go, what are all the area codes of L.A.? I put in L.A. area code. <laughs> I, Levi, there's this website. It's www.google.com. You I need you to send me the, let me Google that for you, Link. <laughs> exactly. Final thing I wanted to talk about is the final scene, the final interrogation scene between Michael Keaton and Pam Greer. Uh, when it's like post the handoff and she like, you know, went around and said that, uh, Melanie came and stole all the money and Michael Keaton isn't really buying it. And Pam Greer is basically just sitting there having to lie her ass off <laughs> in this movie and hoping that he doesn't call her bl- bluff and bring in a polygraph machine. She's sitting there with a cigarette. The cigarette is like, has this tower of ash on it. It's like this huge tower of ash. And I like, it adds such an interesting tension to the scene. Because you want her to flick off that ash so badly. She's got an ashtray sitting right in front of her. And it's just this huge tower of ash, like, almost burning her fingers. And while she's just spinning all these lies to the cops, it was it was really, really effective filmmaking. And it affected me uh, when I was watching it. I was like, this is the type of stuff that maybe you don't uh, notice on the first watch. Because you notice that the tension is rising and rising and rising. But it's, it's the little things. It's those details, like we say, that, that set Quentin Tarantino apart. That's beautiful. I didn't notice it. Well, watch <laughs> it again. So, uh, anything else, Levi? Uh, no, I'm really excited to watch Kill Bill. I think mm-hmm. the I think it's the longest period between any of these movies. Yeah, and he took a break. I think that he was it a break? Do you, do we know what why it took? Because I think he's usually got like two or three between most movies but it was six and was it an intentional break or did he just struggle after kind of a muted response to jackie brown i don't know jackie brown only made 12 million dollars at the box office or no that was the budget how much did it make uh it made nine million its opening weekend yeah it made 40 mil so 40 million dollars he did come out ahead but that's not like a huge i don't know I wonder. I wonder how comparable that is to his other movies. Yeah, I'll I'll take a look. I think that that's something we should revisit because, uh, in many ways, Jackie Brown does set itself apart as a very different type of Tarantino movie, and all the other ones kind of fit in nicely with each other. Jackie Brown kind of is an outlier, so I'd like to see why that break occurred and kind of what led up to Kill Bill as and we I'm, approach that next week. And that's I think the exciting thing about following Kill Bill and and doing this in chronological order. Yeah, is I think he really refines a lot of stuff by the time we get to Kill Bill. I mean, that's you know I don't know that I could actually rate how much I like which Tarantino movies are which you know on yeah. a one to ten for me. But Kill Bill is absolutely one of my favorite movies. I <laughs> the between the action and the dialogue and the homages, um, I'm really excited to kind of to get into his more stylistic era yeah it, it it really is all those all the films post kill bill fit in kind of nicely with each other so it'd be interesting to take that ride uh, i do want to call out to the forums we had two guys on the forums uh with a couple more recommendations that you can check out if you liked jackie brown ksa 1001 sounds like a radio station from plano said that uh you should check out out of sight um which is a steven soderbergh movie uh, starring George Clooney and Jennifer Lopez, but uh, Michael Keaton plays Ray Nicolette in that movie as well. So it's it's interesting because he re- he reprises the role. Um, and then Freddie from Texas 
Uh, also says you should check out Life of Crime. It's it's a prequel of sorts to Jackie Brown in that Mose Def plays Ordell Robbie and John Hawks plays Louis Gara. So if you want to see their their exploits pre Jackie Brown, um, check out Life of Crime. Also, there's going to be a thread up there on forums.baldmove.com for Kill Bill Volume One. So check that out there. Uh, give us your feedback, your fan theories, your surprises, your favorite movies, uh, favorite moments or characters. Discuss it at forums.baldmove.com. Uh, there's one more thing I wanted to say, Levi. Uh, raptor bag. Put your money <laughs> in your raptor bag. I thought that was a weird call out because this movie is set in 1995 and the Toronto Raptors started their first season in 1995. I know, and I think I read somewhere that Jackson was courtside all the time. <laughs> he loved those Toronto Raptors, man. Weirdest name ever in sports, probably. <laughs> so with that, uh, we'll see you next week for Kill Bill Volume 1. I'm Eric. I'm Levi. Cut. <laughs>